would uh, open up the scriptures to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. We'll be starting in verse uh, 21. Uh, I just want to encourage you, if you uh, can tonight, to come to the evening service. We are going to have another baptism uh, tonight. Starting at 6 o'clock will be our evening service. Uh, we'll have worship, baptism, and um, we're actually doing an answer and question time for Exodus. And we had a couple questions uh, be sent in, and um, uh, I saw them yesterday, and they're actually extremely hard questions. So if you want to see me sweat a little bit tonight, you can come. Uh, I thought I knew Exodus really well until I saw these questions. And All right, got to think through this. Uh, with that said, Matthew 18, verse 21. If you would, Sam, for the reading of God's word this morning. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? As I had mercy on you, and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Your God, our Lord, our Father. God, this is a, a challenging teaching. Coming from your son, a, a parable, Lord, that shows just how much we have been forgiven. And at the same time, because of that, why we should be forgiving of others, Lord. Got to pray this morning as we walk through uh, this passage, as we introduce it, and we continue to look at this, this idea of forgiveness, Lord, that you would just search our hearts, Lord where we are not loving our brothers and sisters in the way that we are called to. God, I pray that our church is a church that would be one that quickly asks for forgiveness and quickly grants forgiveness to one another, Lord, that there would be a unity that would look different, different than any other place in this world, Lord, that the church would be unified on the gospel in a way that would be attractive to those that are looking in. 
God, help us, Lord, this morning understand how important forgiveness truly is. In your son's name, amen. I want to start by thanking Daniel and Craig for preaching this, really this last month, and giving me time off from preparing a sermon weekly. Uh, this time really gave me a chance to do two things. Uh, one uh, was really to work on my Greek. As I'm sure we all know, it's been a while since we've been in the New Testament. And uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek. So it's been a while since I've really been using Greek. And this gave me a chance to kind of brush up and uh, really uh, uh, get back into the Greek language. But second, I really had time with this uh, time off to, to study the book of Philippians, uh, which is the next book we're going to be walking through verse by verse. We're going to start that towards the end of August, but really this last couple of weeks, I, I've been given a chance uh, to study it in-depthly. In fact, I got to spend a whole day up in the mountains alone with myself in the Bible, with God, without my cell phone, at least it was turned off, praying and reading through the book of Philippians over and over and over and over again, and it was just such a, such a blessing to be able to do that. But as I was doing that, Something kind of hit me. There, there are two themes in the book of Philippians. There's more than two. Uh, there's a couple major themes in the book of Philippians. But, there, but there's two themes that are, that are just very common throughout the whole New Testament. The two themes uh, that seem to be uh, seen over and over and over again by the New Testament authors, they are the threat, the threat of false teaching and the importance of unity within the church threat of false teaching and the importance of unity within the church. And this really got me thinking as I was meditating on this, right, why these two themes? It's over and over again, and especially the epistles to the church. There are major themes in 1 John. Again, 1 John was the first book I've ever preached through here at Country Oaks. The threat of false teaching, major theme in, in 1 John, and unity and love. It's what that book is known for more than anything else. Right? love for the brethren, fellow Christians, and unity within the local body, the local church. Again, important themes in the book of 1 John. These two themes are found throughout the book of Ephesus, Ephesians, or the, the, the book 2, the Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, uh, which is the book I preached through just before Exodus. Now in Philippians, as I'm studying through Philippians, again, two major themes, the threat of false teaching and the importance of unity. Again, meditating on this uh, the last couple of weeks, it, it was just a reminder to me as a, as a pastor that the threat of false teaching and disunity or divisiveness are major threats to the church. Two threats that the church should always be aware of. As pastors, we should always be aware of this. As church members, we should always be aware of these two threats to the church. Always fighting against... Now, false teaching makes sense to me. Uh, false ideologies, false beliefs is just how the devil attacks. He's the father of what? Lies. Lying is his nature. Lies are his weapons. He undermines the gospel by attacking truth. We see this right from the beginning uh, of the Bible in the garden. The devil attacked truth by asking a simple question, did God actually say? He attacks God's word. So again, false teaching makes sense. It's a major threat, but, but why unity? 
Why unity? Have you, have you ever wondered why unity is so important within the church? So important that almost every epistle written to the church, to local churches, deal with it at some level. Here's what I came up with. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, our witness as a church to our culture, to Tehachapi, to to a lost world, our, our witness largely depends on the love found in here. Again, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Therefore, unity is important. It's important to our our, our witness as a church. Let me just ask a question. Who is going to want to be a part of a church if the church looks and acts just like the world? Divisive, slanderous, bitter, angry. I mean, that's the world, right? That's our culture. You just watch the news. That's what you see. But it shouldn't be the church. The local church should be different. Radically different. Completely different. Attractively different. Therefore, the authors of the New Testament understood that that unity is vital to our witness as a church. And this leads me to the reason why we're in Matthew 18 this morning. Unity is vital to our witness, but the key to unity, the, the key that unlocks unity is forgiveness. It's forgiveness. Unity, again, is extremely important, but without forgiveness within the church, unity is impossible. Listen, I, I have learned over the years as being a pastor that Unity really is a fragile thing. It's a fragile thing. It's something needed to be fought for. And forgiveness is the key to that unity. Therefore, forgiveness is is just such an important subject. And I'm going to be honest, I don't think we're good at it. I don't think we're good at it. I don't think modern Christianity is good at it. I don't think we're good at asking for forgiveness, and I don't think we're good at granting forgiveness. I've just witnessed it in counseling, within the church. People don't know how to ask for forgiveness, and people don't know how to grant forgiveness. Therefore, I wanted to do a sermon on forgiveness this morning. In fact, it's going to be a two-part sermon series based on the parable we just read, found in Matthew 18, 25 through 35. So today's just the first part. We'll, we'll finish this two-part sermon series next week on, on being a forgiving church. There's just two points this morning. We had way too much to celebrate to have a third point, so we're just going to have two. The context of forgiveness and the extent of forgiveness. The context of forgiveness and the extent of forgiveness. So let's start with the context of forgiveness. Again, Matthew 18, 25 through 35 is a parable. 
the teaching of Jesus that parallels life, that's where the word parable comes from, uh, a teaching, a story that's to help us understand how we are to interact with each other, how to forgive. It's a, it's a famous teaching on forgiveness. Many of you have heard this parable a number of times, I'm sure. But this parable has a context. And it's an important context to really understand the parable. It's actually a response to a question, a question asked by Peter. Look at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How often am I to forgive my brother? Seven times? That's what Peter asked. Up to seven times? Now, why did Peter ask this question? Don't get me wrong, it's a really good question. In fact, for how much we we like to pick on Peter for putting his foot in his mouth all the time, he asks some good questions, or at least sometimes when he puts his foot in his mouth, it leads to good teachings on the other end by Jesus. And so I'm thankful for Peter's questions, and I'm thankful for this question. It's not out of nowhere, though. Matthew 18 is actually one long teaching by Jesus. So what did, what did Jesus say or teach that, that provoked Peter to ask this question about forgiveness? I think the answer is actually surprising, at least it surprised me, because the context of Peter's question is church discipline. Now think about that for a second. The context of Jesus' teaching on forgiveness is church discipline. I think that's surprising. In fact, I've thought about that for a while now. In fact, when you say Matthew 18, you don't think of this parable automatically. Usually you think of church discipline. I think it's surprising because most modern Christians, the church today, thinks thinks of church discipline as something that's very harsh or unloving. In fact, most churches don't do it at all. They just disobey this command because it's a hard command. Matthew 18, church discipline is hard to to do. And even those who know church discipline is biblical, it's a command that's been given to the church, they seem to to want to use it as some kind of club to punish those who are in sin, a way of disciplining a sinner, a way of confronting a sinner with a list of grievances. Even the name church discipline just sounds harsh, unloving, cold, Therefore, again, most Christians just have a negative view of church discipline. But think about this. Peter is sitting and listening to Jesus' teaching. He's hearing it from Jesus' own mouth with all the context and the, the disposition that Jesus is teaching it. And his first thought was not, wow, that's harsh. No, it was, wow. How many times am I going to have to forgive a brother? Think about that. In other words, I really think Peter got something that we miss when we read Matthew 18. Church discipline is not about punishing a sinner. It's not a club used by the church to punish sinners. Church discipline is about the attempt to restore a relationship. To seek after a brother who is in sin to save them from the consequences of that sin. Church discipline is a loving act. And it should be done in love. 
Look at Matthew 18, verse 15. It says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The main goal of church discipline is reconciliation, not punishment. The goal is to gain a brother, to go, go after a brother who is in sin and to, to gain him back. In fact, Look at the passage just before verse 15. Remember, this is one long teaching by Jesus. It it all goes together, and I think we split it up too much and and don't see the whole context of what Jesus is teaching here. What's just before verse 15? The parable of the lost sheep. It's a famous parable, a parable that really, I believe, displays God's amazing love for his sheep, where where a loving shepherd goes out looking for a wandering sheep and then rejoices when that sheep is found. Now, is that harsh? No, of course not. In fact, many use this parable as proof of God's love. Jesus, who probably had this song stuck in your head, left the 99 to go after the one. It's proof of Jesus' love. I don't think most people realize or really think about that that this parable, this loving parable is connected to church discipline. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and what? Go. He takes action. The loving shepherd, he he goes after, he, he and go in search of the one that went astray. Well, now look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, what are we to do? Go. Take action. Model Christ's love. Model the good shepherd. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother back. And you should rejoice. Just like the shepherd who gained the sheep back. We are to go, we are to model the shepherd and and gain a brother back. In other words, you are called to go after a brother who sinned against you. And you're to do it, listen to this, with the same love, compassion, gentleness, and urgency as the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. In other words, we are to model Christ's love when we seek after a brother. Now, just as a side note, let me ask a question. Is that, is that what's on your mind when you, when you have a confrontation with a brother or a sister in the church? Is what, what's on your mind, are you thinking... I need to model Jesus' shepherding love here. I need to be gentle, careful in how I approach this, kind, compassionate. I need to be believing the best, humble, because my goal is to gain back a brother, or you have a list of grievances in your mind that you just want to make public. There's a difference. And listen, 
that's the context. The context brings just a whole different attitude to church discipline. When a, when a brother's in sin, we are, we are to model Christ's love by going after them and, and gently, graciously, lovingly, kindly, like, like a loving shepherd, confront them. Again, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go. That's the main imperative there. Go. That's the command. Go after him and, and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't gossip. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Listen, I, I think Peter understood something that we just miss when it comes to church discipline. He, he, he saw that, that if we do this, or if he did this in the same way Jesus confronted people, he's seen Jesus confront a number of people at this point. If I confront people like a loving shepherd and model Jesus' love, I'm going to have to forgive a lot of people because they're going to receive that confrontation well. So Peter asks, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Here's why I labor this, and this may sound odd. Forgiveness is meant to happen within the context of relationships. Now, it sounds odd because that seems so obvious. But let me say it again. Forgiveness is meant to happen within the context of relationships. Peter asks the question about forgiveness because, because he knows if this is, where, this is where loving confrontation will often lead. Again, loving confrontation to, to a person repenting and asking for forgiveness. Again, forgiveness is meant to happen within the context of relationships. Let me just kind of walk through Matthew 18. When a brother sins against you within the church, you are to lovingly underlined in my, my notes here, <laughs> lovingly confront him between you and him alone, like the, the shepherd in, in verse 12, like Jesus. And if you do that, there's a really good chance he's going to turn from his sin and then ask you for forgiveness. And Peter knows He's called to forgive. He's seen Jesus. He's seen his, his nature to forgive. That's the context. That's the context of Peter's question. That's the context of Jesus' teaching on forgiveness. Now, I want to point something out before we move on to the next point. Something that I, I think is very important and something that is, is very much overlooked in the church today. It's this, and my wording here is, is very careful. Forgiveness is meant to happen interpersonally, not just personally. You hear that? Forgiveness is meant to happen interpersonally, not just personally. Let me just unpack this a little bit. When a person asks you for forgiveness and you grant them forgiveness, you say, I forgive you, that's sometimes called, and I think this is a, a helpful term, that's sometimes called transactional forgiveness. A transaction of forgiveness has happened. A person has asked, and you have granted. Transactional forgiveness. Interpersonal. 
This is the, the highest form of forgiveness. It's what we, we should always be seeking for. Again, the forgiveness process starts personally. Don't get me wrong. It starts within the heart. But we should be seeking for transactional forgiveness, interpersonal forgiveness. If a brother has sinned against you, or you have sinned against a brother, you should seek transactional forgiveness. Let me be clear. Forgiveness, again, starts in the heart. It starts in the heart. It starts with a a love for a brother that is so profound that you will go. You will go after that brother if he's in sin. And then forgive him when he repents. Therefore, again, the context of forgiveness is a relationship. Again, that just seems so obvious, but we live in such an individualistic culture that we have made forgiveness purely a personal thing, a therapeutic thing, something that's more about me and myself personally than a relationship. Now, don't get me wrong. Forgiving someone is very therapeutic. It's good for your soul. But forgiveness has become something that you do in so-called therapy instead of something you do to restore a relationship. Let me be clear. You should and can let minor offenses go personally or just overlook minor offenses. It's something that's very commended in Scripture. In fact, Proverbs 19, 11 says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So just let it go. We don't need a bunch of sin police in our church. And to be honest, I think many of us need to grow a thicker skin. We get hurt way too easily. Just let it go. There's certain things that you can just let go within your own heart personally. But if an offense is not minor, something you, you can't just let go or something that's really going to hurt that person that's in sin... You should always seek, if possible, transactional forgiveness. Again, the context of forgiveness is a relationship. Matthew 18, 15 says this, If your your brother sins against you, go. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, meaning he recognizes his sin, and then asks you for forgiveness, and you grant him forgiveness, that's transactional forgiveness, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother, you've restored the relationship. That's the goal. The goal is to gain a brother, to restore a relationship. The point that I'm trying to make is this. Again, the context of forgiveness is a relationship. It's the church. It's the body. It's relationships within the church. brings me to my second point. Again, the context of forgiveness, the extent of forgiveness. Again, after hearing Jesus' teaching on church discipline, Peter has a question. This is verse 21. Verse 21 says this, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, 
how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now, as I've said a couple times already and tried to make it very clear that, that Peter understood that if, and if he models Jesus' shepherding love by going after his brother in sin, then he's also going to have to model Jesus' forgiving love when that brother repents. Therefore, he asks, how many times do I need to forgive a brother? As many as seven times? Now, that number seven actually tells us a lot. It it tells us what what Peter uh, knew about Jesus. He knew that Jesus was a very forgiving person. And he knew that 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 expectation was going to be placed on Peter. Let me explain why that that number seven actually shows a lot of Peter's understanding of, of Jesus. In rabbinical teaching... Uh, the, the rabbis taught that you were to forgive. But they also taught that forgiveness had a limit. Rabbis taught that you were to forgive a brother up to three times, but on the fourth time, you're not to forgive that brother again. So if a brother sins in a particular way and then sins again in that same particular way, then sins again in that same particular way, you're to forgive him up to three times. The fourth time, you are not to forgive him because obviously... It's insincere. And so you should... Forgiveness is done at that point. So think about that for a second. Peter's been taught this his whole life, that you're to forgive three times, and the fourth time you don't forgive. The disciples, the apostles have been taught this too. But he knows something about Jesus. He just knows how forgiving Jesus is. So he thinks he's being very generous when he says, how about seven times? That's more than twice as many as he's been taught his whole life to forgive someone. Peter is probably thinking he's being ultra-spiritual or super-gracious here, but again, he asks, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, in Greek, this is an idiom. It could be translated 77 times like the ESV does, or it could be translated seven times 70 times, which would be 490 times. Either way, the point is the same. You are to forgive endlessly. (laughs) Endlessly. Jesus is taking Peter's number and multiplying it to a ridiculous amount. It would be ridiculous to sit there and go, okay, I forgave you once, twice, three times, and count all the way up to 77 times. I mean, you have to take records of every single moment. It's a point. It's ridiculous, especially if it's 490 times. The point is this. Our forgiveness should be limitless. Limitless. In other words, we are called to follow Jesus' example by going after a brother who's in sin. And if he repents, we are to forgive him. And we are to forgive him over and over and over again if necessary. We should be eager to forgive. We should be eager to forgive. As we're going to see next week in the parable, we've been forgiven so much. It's our chance to to model God, model Christ by being eager to forgive a brother. The extent of our forgiveness is is endless. Endless. 
Now, this is not an easy teaching. In fact, at first service, and I feel at this service, there's a heaviness. The relationships are so real interpersonally. In fact, I have learned that, that one of the hardest things we're called to do as a Christian is confront a brother in sin. It's so hard. And not just that, forgiving them when they repent. Extremely hard. It, it's so much easier just to avoid each other. Right? It's so much easier just to avoid each other, that, but that would make us right, no different than the world. In fact, we, we've taken this to such, such an extreme extent in our culture today that, that we, we will move to different states to, to get away from people we disagree with in the world. You know, a lot of people do that within the church, though. I'll purposely go to first service so I don't see someone in second service. I'll purposely sit on this side of the church so I don't have to talk with person on that side of the church. It is so much easier to avoid each other. Again, we have to fight for unity. Unity will not happen passively. It's an active battle. It's a purposeful battle. It's a battle motivated by love and the glory of God. And our greatest weapon in the battle is forgiveness. Forgiveness, interpersonal, transactional forgiveness. That is our greatest weapon against the divisiveness of the enemy. Now, next week we're going to look at Jesus' parable on forgiveness. In fact, today's sermon is just an introduction to the real sermon next week. That's what happens when you give me time off. Next week we're going to look at the heart of forgiveness, the, the motive behind forgiveness. Again, today's just an introduction, uh, but, but let me end this way today, because I, I want to end on a positive note, because this is, a, this is a hard calling. But think about this. In Matthew 18 throughout, and even in the parable, we're going to see very clearly, we are called to model God by going after a brother in sin, going after him in a, in a loving way, like Jesus the shepherd, but also we are called to model God by forgiving a brother who is in sin. In fact, Ephesians 4, 32 says this, be kind to one another, tended harder, hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If we are to model God's forgiveness by forgiving seven times 70, endlessly think about what that means about God God's forgiveness is endless it's endless the extent of our forgiveness is to be unending because the extent of God's forgiveness is unending I mean that's good news in fact that's really good news because I, I'm sitting here this morning and the time of silence is, and getting ready to take communion. 
And I'm reflecting back at the ways that I have sinned this morning. And asking for forgiveness with confidence that God will forgive me. Because his forgiveness is unending for those who are a part of his. Meaning if you're truly saved, you put your faith in Christ, you have trusted in him, you understand that that your wages of sin is death and he died on the cross for your sins, that he died not only for sins in the past, but the sins in the present, but also the sins in the future. That God's forgiveness is unending. Let me be clear. There is nothing that will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That includes your failures if you're truly saved this morning. That's good news. And we're called to model that, as we will see next week as we continue our sermon series on forgiveness. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father, our Lord, God, I thank you for your word so much. We we have these hard commands to to confront and to forgive, to to have transactional forgiveness within a relationship, to to not just avoid, to not just gossip or slander or be bitter within our hearts, that we are to let that go and go after one another, to reconcile relationships, Lord. That's a hard command, yet you modeled it so beautifully. As we see... Christ confronting those lovingly. I think of the woman on the well and how gently Christ confronted her in her sin. That we are to model that gentleness, that love, the urgency that we see in the Good Shepherd as we go after the one. God, help us to have that heart, Lord. And help us to be not only willing, but eager to forgive to grant forgiveness to the person asking for forgiveness, to reconcile a relationship. That we know unity is so important that we would fight for it, that we would go after one another, that we would grant forgiveness, Lord. That this would all be motivated because of the forgiveness that we have found in you, Lord. God, I pray that our church would be known as a church that is a forgiving church, a church that is unified on the gospel. In your son's name.